Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A judge has just ordered the Trump raid affidavit to be partially unsealed by Friday noon. It comes right after the Justice Department submitted their suggestions on which portions to black out. We'll bring you the latest. An unpublished DOJ legal memo was recently released in full. It says former President Trump didn't obstruct justice during the Russia collusion investigation. Two Florida residents could face up to five years in jail for stealing a diary from President Biden's daughter, Ashley Biden. They pleaded guilty today. Revised GDP data released today signals that the economy is shrinking. Companies are preparing to lay off workers, and some economists tell us they fear this is only the beginning. The United States continues talks with Iran to save the Iran nuclear deal. NTD speaks with an expert on the region to see what's at stake. And in tennis, a 21-time Grand Slam champion unable to enter the United States for the U.S. Open. A sad outcome for the unvaccinated Novak Djokovic. We're now a step closer to finding out what the Trump raid was all about. A redacted version of the affidavit the FBI used to get a search warrant is expected to be released on Friday. NTD Steve Lance reports. A federal judge is ordered to partially unseal the affidavit used to justify the Mar-a-Lago raid, which could reveal the factual basis leading to the FBI's search. It comes right after the Justice Department submits its proposal to redact the document, meeting a Thursday deadline set by the court. In his order to unseal, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart writes that the DOJ has shown a compelling cause to seal portions of the affidavit because disclosure would reveal the identities of witnesses in the investigation's strategy. Reinhardt adds that he finds the suggested redactions offer, quote, the least onerous alternative to sealing the entire affidavit. The DOJ now has a Friday noon deadline to file in the public docket a redacted version of the much sought after document. Over to the Department of Justice, a recently released memo advised against charging former President Trump with obstruction of justice. The Office of Legal Counsel said it had never seen a case like it before. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. In 2018, former President Trump fired his Attorney General Jeff Sessions right after the midterm elections. That's also during the time Special Counsel Robert Mueller was investigating possible Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. And because of the firing, Trump was accused of interfering with the investigation itself or obstruction of justice. Mueller's report didn't say whether Trump obstructed justice or not, and that left people wondering. But a legal counsel memo recently released by the Department of Justice says Trump didn't obstruct justice at all. It states, we have not identified any actions that present clear violations of the obstruction of justice statutes. The memo, dated March 24, 2019, became public after a federal appeals court ordered its release last week in response to a lawsuit from a watchdog group. It states that neither Mueller nor legal counsel found any previous obstruction cases similar to this one. So Mueller's obstruction theory was a new one. And based on his own analysis, it would be unusual because even Mueller didn't find evidence that Trump colluded with Russia. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. 
And now turning to the Biden family. Two people pleaded guilty today to stealing the diary of President Biden's daughter, Ashley Biden. They sold the diary to Project Veritas in 2020. Amy Harris and Robert Kurlander of Florida each pleaded guilty to moving stolen goods across state lines. This is a federal felony. The pair allegedly took the diary from a private residence that they had access to in Delray Beach, Florida. The Justice Department said they sold it for $40,000, and they returned to take more items when asked to do so. The pair could face up to five years in prison. Project Veritas didn't publish the diary, but a website called Flyover Media did. And on the Hunter Biden laptop investigation, Republican Senator Ron Johnson is making public whistleblower allegations from FBI agents. They claim that the FBI told agents not to investigate the Hunter Biden laptop before the 2020 election. The senator wrote a letter to the Justice Department's Inspector General on Tuesday. Johnson said whistleblowers have recently contacted his office with serious concerns about the FBI. The whistleblowers reportedly said that the FBI intentionally undermined efforts to investigate Hunter Biden after the Bureau obtained his laptop. FBI leadership reportedly told employees, quote, you will not look at that Hunter Biden laptop and that the FBI is not going to change the outcome of the election again. The whistleblowers also alleged that the FBI did not begin investigating the, the laptop until after the 2020 presidential election. The senator is calling on the inspector general to investigate the FBI's handling of the case. And the Department of Commerce today released revised GDP data from the second quarter. Consumer spending has increased, but the economy is still shrinking. This, as a recent survey reveals that many companies are prepared to slash jobs. Some economists tell us this is only the beginning. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. GDP, or gross domestic product data, shows there was a 0.6% drop in productivity for the second quarter. The initial analysis indicated a 0.9% decrease. Now, the negative print comes from inventories, and in particular, lower investment in inventories. Uh, the good news is that consumer spending continues to hold up, uh, and hold up quite nicely. Uh, Two-thirds of economic output is tied to consumer spending. First-time unemployment claims dropped below 250,000 last week, a positive sign for the labor market. But the labor force participation is still considerably low, meaning people who are able to work aren't working. Author and economist Robert Janetsky explains. We should have maybe 9% more people working at this time. So it's a very disturbing thing because apparently there are a lot of people getting away with not working, even though they're in the working age population. More often than not, it tends to be because they can get enough government payments that they don't really have to work. Labor force participation is much lower than it was pre-pandemic. The workforce is roughly 2 million workers short, and companies are planning for job cuts. A recent survey reveals that half of the 700 executives who were asked say they plan to slash jobs. Economists say this is because businesses are planning ahead for aggressive interest rates from the Fed. When business drops, you need to cut costs to keep pace with that. And oftentimes, what those costs that get cut, it tends to be payroll. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates four times to tame inflation. But it's only the beginning. Janetsky tells me he expects to see weak economic conditions until early next year. 
and they could be very, very serious. So we just, at this point, we just don't know. But there are a number of indicators that I'm looking at that suggest that the economy has been weakened very significantly, especially from recent legislation that has uh, undermined a strong, healthy, growing economy. The Fed is expected to continue to hike interest rates, and it's expected that we won't see the true effect of the Federal Reserve's response until the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And the latest on President Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 of students' loans. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget published a report today saying the plan will cost about $500 billion over 10 years. And while the administration has faced criticism over the cost, people are also questioning the legality of such a move. Earlier today, I spoke with constitutional scholar Rob Nadelson for his analysis. Rob Nadelson, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be back with you. Thank you, Stephanie. Now, Biden's plan to forgive some student loan debts is getting pushback from many angles, one being the constitutionality of it. Critics say that only Congress has federal spending power, but Biden's team is reportedly saying that this power it has during a national emergency. What's your take on that? Well, the, it depends on the scope of the statute, but I would say instinctively that the critics are right. It's been a foundation of our entire Anglo-American constitutional tradition, back to the beginning, that fiscal decisions are made by the legislature. That was the uh, something we won in a sec in a centuries-long battle. And what this particular decree does is it relieves one group of people from a debt and then imposes costs on a whole different set of people. That sounds like a legislative decision to me. But the Biden administration is going to have to cite some specific provision of a statute that allows them to make this this financial transfer from one group of Americans to another. No less an authority than Nancy Pelosi said last year that he can't do it. She said that while the president can extend the payment of debts or maybe impose a moratorium, only Congress is in the position to actually forgive debts or more precisely to run up the deficit or to run up the taxes necessary to pay for this. And I suspect she's right about that. This has been the pattern of this administration. Uh, this administration is arguably, and I don't want to uh, be hyperbolic here, but it's arguably more dictatorial than any administration we've seen uh, during American peacetime. They come up with one decree after another, and then if you don't like it, they say, sue us. Fortunately, we still have an independent judiciary, and the judiciary in many cases has struck down these orders from the Biden administration. Now, the Constitution does have some protections against debt forgiveness. Where yes. did those constitutional protections for well, come from? Yeah, this is, this is also a core principle of American constitutionalism, just like the core principle that, that financial decisions are supposed to be made by the legislature. Uh, during the 1780s, a lot of states were uh, run by demagogic politicians irresponsible politicians who were giving relief, passing relief from debts for, for no particular good reasons. And not only did our American founders believe that this was immoral, but it also helped to trigger or at least prolong an economic depression. 
because when you couldn't get your money back, people weren't willing to lend money. So capital dried up. So, the, so in the Constitution, they put a provision which says that no state shall impair the obligation of contracts. And there were a few other related provisions so that states couldn't do that anymore. Unfortunately, they didn't exactly say that regarding the federal government, because frankly, the founders did not foresee the, uh, the federal government being as irresponsible as the Biden administration is being in this instance. And so how do you think the founding fathers would approach this situation today? Oh, they would be absolutely horrified. As, as I said, not only would they view this as economically irresponsible and immoral, but of course they would point out that when you already have a, uh, a national debt, which is larger than your entire economy, it's the height of irresponsibility to add to it in, in this way. You know, uh, one of the founders' favorite scholars said, you can tell a lot about uh, a politician by whether that politician encourages you to be virtuous and responsible or whether that politician encourages you to be, encourages you to be licentious and irresponsible. The latter kind of politician is the kind who wants to subject you to servitude, who wants to reduce you to slavery. And that's looking an awful lot like the Biden administration right now. Students had a hard time during the pandemic. That's the Biden administration's argument. And so did those people who are gonna to have to pay for this, right? I mean, people who either didn't go to college and learned a trade and are working to put food on their, uh, food for their family, uh, or people whose families uh, dipped into savings to help to pay for college, or people who worked all the way through college, they suffered in the pandemic too. But they're the ones who are gonna be stuck with the bill for this. So what do you expect to happen next and wh what should happen next in your opinion? Well, I, I do expect, and this has already happened, the, president, the president's opponents, uh, going out and criticizing it and pointing out to middle America that they're going to be paying for this. Uh, ironically, the, um, uh, one of the points that the White House made at the same time they announced this was that college has been getting prohibitively expensive. But they didn't tell you why college is becoming prohibitively expensive. It's because, the, because of the federal government's programs, like the Pell Grants and the student loan programs that have pumped a huge amount of money into the system. So all this is going to do is it's going to drive up the cost of college even further. However, I suppose the Biden administration might think that that's worth it because colleges and universities, especially the woke variety, are a significant part of their political base. And this is, let's, let's be frank about it, a payoff to their political base. And what should happen going forward? do you think? <laughs> well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is that the Congress needs to assert itself. I mean, it's enough for Republicans, it's not enough for Republicans merely to criticize this and raise public consciousness about it. But the executive in this instance, as in many other instances, is attacking the basic prerogatives of the legislative branch. And so there ought to be some, uh, first there ought to be a close scrutiny of the law, uh, to see if he's got authority to do this. If, as I suspect, he does not, uh, there need to be appropriate lawsuits. But I don't think it. I don't think it should be limited to that. I think there should be a, a censor resolution uh, against the administration, against the president, introduced in Congress. And I also believe that uh, there should be other kinds of resolutions, or perhaps even 
legislation to stop it. Now, of course, Biden would veto any legislation, but there are ways to strike back without worrying about the veto, such as, for example, denying funding to programs that he likes. So uh, the legislature has a lot of tools in its kit. What we have to wait to see is whether the legislature, the Congress, has the guts to use them. All right. Thank you so much, Rob Nadelson, constitutional scholar. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Stephanie. Appreciate it. And now to Uvalde, Texas, where the school board on Wednesday fired the school district's embattled police chief. That's in response to his handling of what became the deadliest school shooting in nearly a decade. The massacre at Robb Elementary School in May left 19 children as well as two teachers dead. Texas officials say at the time, Pete Arredondo acted as incident commander in charge of law enforcement's response to the shooting. Parents of children both killed and wounded demanded his dismissal since the incident. Classmates and relatives of the victims were present in the meeting. The board's decision was unanimous. Arredondo, who was also forced to resign from his seat on the Uvalde City Council in July, did not attend the meeting. A written statement from his attorney was emailed to board members citing death threats and what Arredondo said was the district's lack of effort to provide any protection for him. And in international news, the United States and Iran are at the negotiating table to restore the Iran nuclear deal. Currently, the ball is in Iran's court, and they say they're carefully studying the views of the American side. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. If Iran were able to obtain a nuclear weapon... U.S. officials have indicated there are still issues that need to be resolved before America will rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. The U.S. sent its response to the European Union the day after the Israeli National Security Advisor met with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Israel's Prime Minister Yair Lapid said this about the U.S. proposal to save the Iran nuclear deal. Israel is not against any agreement. We are against this agreement because it is a bad one. A spokesperson for Iran's foreign ministry said they have received the U.S. response and they are carefully studying American views. Some say the U.S. is too trusting. Negotiations have that fundamental flaw that he trusts the regime as a normal actor. I spoke with Dr. Majid Sadejpour, the political director of the Organization of the Iranian American Communities, which promotes a free and democratic Iran. He gave some backdrop on the situation. The international community has not learned of what Iran has been doing on the nuclear issue because Iran devours anything on its own. Just about everything that we know about Iran's nuclear weapons program, Iran's nuclear program in general, is because it was divulged by Iranian resistance and part of it by other nations. But mostly all of it has been not because Iran was transparent, not because Iran told us anything and really met its obligations on the international law. So that said, uh, any negotiations with this regime has that flaw, that you're, you're accepting on the premise that Iran would be a, a, a decent actor. He said Iran will continue to pursue a nuclear bomb because it needs one for its own survival, as there have been several nationwide uprisings in the past few years calling for regime change. The Iranian regime's president, Ibrahim Raisi, is currently expected to speak before the United Nations General Assembly in September. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
And this week's Twitter whistleblower is scheduled to testify before the Senate about his allegations. His report says Twitter poses a threat to national security. But how exactly would it do that? Our reporter spoke with a cybersecurity expert for the U.S. military to find out more. Peter Zatko is Twitter's former head of security and a hacker who goes by the name of Mudge. He filed an 84-page-long whistleblower complaint with multiple congressional committees. He is set to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee in mid-September. Zatko alleges that thousands of Twitter employees have access to user data and to Twitter's internal systems. But what threats could that pose, and how could it affect national security? Mike Itkus is a cybersecurity expert for the U.S. military. He says such flaws could grant easy access to foreign powers. Advanced persistent threats that are um, either sponsored by other countries' intelligence agencies or uh, criminal organizations. Sometimes they're related. In 2020, the Twitter accounts of multiple prominent individuals, such as Elon Musk and Joe Biden, were hacked. Two of the hackers were teenagers. The whistleblower report reads, but if a teenager with access to an admin panel can bring the company to its knees, just imagine what Vladimir Putin could do. The alleged security flaws could also pose the threat of domestic attacks against ordinary individuals. For example, if someone doesn't agree with a person's political views. Any polarized society, people would be trying to go after each other. And um, hackers have been doing so for, for a while. A spokeswoman for Twitter earlier this week said that Zatko's allegations appeared to be riddled with inaccuracies. She said that Twitter has improved security extensively since 2020, that its security practices are within industry standards, and that it has specific rules about who can access company systems. Itkus is now running for Congress as an independent. He wants to establish laws that would make it mandatory for the federal government to protect citizens' cybersecurity, similar to the way law enforcement already protects people's physical security. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. And there may be a viral phenomenon taking place in offices across the U.S. It's called quiet quitting. What is it exactly, and how did it all start? NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. Kristen Morris is a young professional in Texas. She's been able to keep her first full-time job since graduation for over seven years now, but that did not come easy. It was my first full-time job out of college, so I really wanted to make a good first impression, seem like I'm going above and beyond doing even more than they could possibly want for me to do. I mean, basically just staying late, doing extra projects, asking people if they needed anything else extra done. But since the pandemic, the company has shifted to remote work and so has some employees' attitudes towards work. So I used to stay late all the time, put in a lot of extra work, and now it's like, when I'm done for the day, I'm done for the day. Morris is now part of a workplace trend called quiet quitting. It's basically meeting the bare minimum requirements expected at work. That's it. No more going above and beyond or striving for more. I'm paid for 40 hours a week, and I give you 40 hours a week. I, I'm not going to work 50 or 60 hours just for those 40s. Or even if I have the option to, to work for those 50 or 60, I want to have a life outside of work. Ira Wolf is the founder of Success Performance Solutions, helping match the right workers with the right companies. 
He says employers are not fans of this quiet quitting trend. They're really looking at it from a negative side, that our employees aren't willing to give us 150 percent. They're not willing to, to cross that line. Historically, Wolf says, employers always had the upper hand because there were many good workers to choose from. People had to hold on to their jobs. If they, if they were let go, there was another person, another employee possibly waiting in line. But the tides have turned, he says, because of the high demand for talent. Workers now have the upper hand, and some have decided to pretty much coast on the job and pursue a work-life balance. I think quiet quitting is good for employees who may have been burnt out before if they had a commute or really hectic schedule. Wolf says if companies are able to act quickly, they may be able to benefit from this trend. You know, people have an innate in nature that want to do the best. They want to be liked. They want to be recognized. Those those are inherent uh, inherent traits of a human being. Uh, so there's an opportunity for companies to really respond and take uh, not take advantage, but uh, accept the the calling that a lot of employees are having to go out and uh, you know give give them a purpose. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, California has voted to ban the sale of new gasoline cars by 2035. It's one of the first of such bans worldwide. And a tennis champion unable to enter the U.S. Open. NTD's Dave Martin has the latest updates from unvaccinated Novak Djokovic after the break. California air regulators voted today to ban the sale of new gasoline cars by 2035 and set interim targets to phase the cars out. The measure is a historic one in the U.S. and would be one of the first such bans worldwide. It has major implications for the U.S. car market given the large size of California's economy and that several states are expected to implement similar rules. The board's new rules would also set interim quotas for zero-emission vehicles, focusing on new models. Starting with 2026 models, 35% of vehicles sold in California would be required to be zero-emission vehicles. That quota would gradually increase each year until it reaches 100% by 2035. The rules would not impact used vehicles, allowing them to stay on the roads. The rules won't be immediate and are set to begin going into effect in 2026. And staying in California, after a decade of trying, one watchdog group has finally gotten access to the state's books. So now we get to know what California's government is spending on with its taxpayer money. NTD's Colin Fredrickson speaks with the CEO of this group called Open the Books to learn more. The California government spending has finally been made public. OpenTheBooks.com, the world's largest private database of America's public expenditures, has spent a decade trying to open California's books. It has succeeded in opening every other state's books. California was the one and only holdout because the state controller refused to cooperate. Eventually, we filed 442 Freedom of Information Act sunshine requests under the California Public Records Act on every single state agency 
and we successfully captured about 98% of state expenditures. Adam Angievsky is the founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. Angievsky says only 27 state agencies have refused to be transparent, most of them small junior colleges. Based on the data we do have, California is the third biggest spender, according to Open the Book's latest numbers. It's behind Texas and New York, and it paid that money to the second largest number of vendors behind Ohio. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation got over $400,000 in taxpayer money, and the Tides Advocacy Group, which supports left-of-center causes, got $4 million. Angievsky says knowing how the state is spending your money helps us hold them accountable. For example, Governor Newsom he seeks to be an environmentalist. But in the state checkbook, we found millions of dollars worth of state payments flowed to three out of the top four plastic polluters in the world. This was PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, and, ne and Nestle. Angievsky also says he found signs firms could be trying to buy a favor with the governor. Some of the largest corporations in California, those corporations that have a virtual marketplace monopoly oftentimes within the fields of telecom, energy, and healthcare. They're also the largest donors to the governor's wives' public charity. Her charity is called The Representation Project, which says it's dedicated to fighting sexism through filmmaking. The companies include AT&T, Comcast, Kaiser Permanente, and Planned Parenthood. For more information, head over to OpenTheBooks.com. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. California Governor Gavin Newsom is getting involved in the Florida gubernatorial race. He's donating to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's Democratic challenger. Newsom is donating $100,000 to the campaign of Charlie Crist, who won the Democratic nomination in the Florida gubernatorial primary this Tuesday. The California governor tweeted today, time to make Ron DeSantis a one-term governor. Who will join me in helping Charlie become the next governor of Florida? Christ served as the Florida governor from 2007 to 2011. He's currently a member of Congress. Republican Governor DeSantis is running for a second term, and the Cook Political Report says he's likely to win. Many websites track user data for various reasons, ranging from selling personal information to product recommendations. In California, the attorney general and a large cosmetics retailer recently settled a consumer privacy lawsuit based on just that. NTD's David Lamb reports. California Attorney General Rob Bonta announced on Wednesday a $1.2 million settlement regarding consumer privacy with cosmetics retail giant Sephora. As we all know, data is power. And these days, everyone wants it. Corporations collect and sell troves of your data in order to know intimate details about your life on a scale we couldn't have imagined not even 20 years ago. Your online habits and locations are constantly tracked, your behaviors. After conducting an enforcement sweep of online retailers in June 2021, Bonta alleged the company failed to disclose to consumers that it was selling their personal information. It failed to process user requests to opt out of sale via user-enabled global privacy controls and that it did not remedy these violations within the 30-day period currently allowed by the California Consumer Privacy Act. 
Sephora agreed to pay the $1.2 million in penalties and make changes, including clarifying its online disclosures. Sephora responded to NTD in a statement saying, Sephora respects consumers' privacy and strives to be transparent about how their personal information is used to improve their Sephora experience and product recommendations. It's time for companies to get the memo, protect consumer data, honor their privacy rights. It's really quite simple and very straightforward. Sephora said the settlement is not an admission of liability and that it is already complying with state law. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 21-time Grand Slam champion Novak Djokovic, who's unvaccinated against COVID-19, says he won't be able to travel to New York for the U.S. Open, which starts on August 29. Djokovic wished good luck to his competitors in a tweet and said he'll wait for an opportunity to compete again. The former number one ranked player who spent more weeks at the top than any player in history has fallen to sixth in the rankings, having played just 11 tournaments in the past year. He famously missed the Australian Open after being deported over the country's vaccination policy. He was able to play the French Open though, falling to Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals and won Wimbledon last month, beating Nick Kyrgios for the title. With the absence of Djokovic and the still-injured Roger Federer, Nadal becomes a clear favorite twin at Flushing Meadows. The 36-year-old Spaniard won the Australian Open and the French Open earlier this year to give him a record 22 major titles. He was in line to compete for a spot in the finals of Wimbledon as well against Djokovic, but had to withdraw with an injury before the semis. Elsewhere at the U.S. Open, Serena Williams will start off against 80th-ranked Danka Kovinic in what Williams has hinted will be her last tournament. Williams, who will turn 41 in September, is an uncharacteristic 1-3 this season after missing a year with a leg injury. The 23-time Grand Slam champion, who's won this hardcore event six times previously, needs one more major title to catch Margaret Court's all-time record. In NBA news, Chet Holmgren, who's picked second overall by the Oklahoma City Thunder in the league's draft earlier this summer, will miss the entire season with a foot injury. The seven-footer from Gonzaga University, who's listed at just 195 pounds, suffered a foot injury after defending LeBron James on a fast break at a Pro-Am event in Seattle. The game was actually canceled in the second quarter because of poor court conditions, including wet spots blamed on an unusually humid day. The 20-year-old Holmgren averaged 14 points and 10 rebounds a game as a freshman last year for the Zags. He showed the ability to play all over the court, hitting nearly 40% of his threes while blocking just under four shots a game. And finally, in the NFL, Tampa Bay quarterback Tom Brady is expected to play Saturday in the Bucks' preseason finale against the Indianapolis Colts. Head coach Todd Bowles said, quote, everyone who is healthy will play when asked about Brady's availability. The seven-time Super Bowl champion took an 11-day excused absence for personal reasons and has yet to appear in a preseason game. Tampa Bay will start the regular season on September 11 in Dallas with the 45-year-old Brady set to be the oldest starting quarterback in league history. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. 
Thanks, Dave. And coming up, the Russia-occupied nuclear power plant in Ukraine was briefly cut off from the power grid, raising alarm over a potential nuclear disaster. The White House called on Russia to give up control of the plant. And a gender identity clinic in the UK is expected to face mass legal action. Young people are claiming they've been rushed through puberty-blocking drugs. We'll hear from the partner at the firm leading the lawsuit here on NTD News. Ukraine, the Russia-occupied nuclear power plant is working again after being cut off from the power grid earlier today. That's according to the United Nations. It had lost power because of fire damage that caused a blackout, raising fears of a nuclear disaster. The UN's nuclear watchdog hopes it can visit the site in a matter of days. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency says they're very close to getting access to the nuclear facility. That's according to media outlet France 24. Also today, the White House press secretary said that Russia should agree to a demilitarized zone around the nuclear plant, which has been in Russian hands since March. She also said President Biden reiterated U.S. support for Ukraine in a call with Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky earlier in the day. And President Vladimir Putin today signed a decree that could see 137,000 personnel added to Russia's military forces. Moscow has released a few details on its losses in Ukraine, but not many. But latest official figures for March said there had been over 1,300 killed in action. At a graveyard in North Ossetia, the father of a dead soldier calls Russia's actions in Ukraine a necessary sacrifice. In Vladikavkaz, the capital of North Ossetia, in Russia's southern Caucasus region, David Beryev visits the grave of his son almost every day. Vitali was 20 when he was killed in July, and he is one of 56 soldiers laid to rest in this graveyard. Beryev says he thought the campaign would last no more than one or two months, but he says it became clear that Russia wasn't fighting against Ukraine. Russia is not fighting with Ukraine. This is clear to everybody. It's common knowledge. Russia is fighting against NATO. And when I realized that, it became clear to me that it is going to last for a long time. Beryev says Russia's actions in Ukraine were needed. At this point, I think this sacrifice was necessary. If it had not started, there might well have been more casualties. Cemetery assistant Olga Gryaznova tries to offer those grieving whatever consolation she can. She says she doesn't understand why the young people, whom she calls heroes, have had to die for their country. I really don't understand who needed this war. The mothers, too, keep asking the question, who needed this war? I have no answer for them. Maybe it was meant to be this way. Maybe it was God's will up there. I don't know. The number of North Ossetians killed in action in six months of war now exceeds 100. And over in the UK, mass legal action is expected to be launched against one clinic amid claims it rushed patients into taking treatments, including puberty-blocking drugs. The Tavistock Gender Clinic is facing legal action from young people who say they were rushed into taking puberty blockers. The law firm Pogus Goodhead is leading the class action lawsuit. 
Well, I'm here today with Alicia Alinia, who's the Chief Operating Officer and Partner at Pogus Goodhead. So how do the children, or the young people, get referred to the clinic in the first place? So it can be a number of different avenues. It could be concerned parents where children raise issues of gender identity. It could be a whole host of um, issues that a, that a minor or adolescent might be, able, might be raising. They might be referred privately. Um, and what ordinarily happens with any of these types of uh, situations, you get assessed by the medical team. There should be a multidisciplinary approach to assess uh, you know, whether that particular patient is the right candidate to go through a process that results in life-changing um, consequences. Uh, and we believe on, these, on this occasion, according to the CAS report, that hasn't happened. Uh, there's been more of a broad brush approach, which is fundamentally wrong. You were just saying it was fundamentally wrong. Can you tell me more about that? Well, in any situation where you go and seek um, medical treatment or advice, uh, where it, it could result in, in kind of body changes, life-changing changes, for example, puberty, puberty blockers, which can have um, impact on fertility, um, where uh, the individual's body changes significantly over time, um, you would expect there to be uh, a real assessment as to whether that candidate is the right candidate. Um, psychological assessments, physical assessments, and according to this report, that seems not to have been done um, consistently across the board. It must be really distressing for the people who you're in touch with, the, the patients or the former patients. Um, can you tell me what, what kind of things they're going through at the moment? Well, it's, I mean, we're in really, really early stages, and you're absolutely right. There's a real vulnerability here because um, it's one of those um, conversations that are quite difficult to have for those who've been impacted. Um, and so it could be a whole host of different things. So puberty block, broth blockers can have, um, uh, you know, uh, huge implications for somebody's um, adolescent upbringing. Uh, in terms of their own development. Um, infertility, as I've mentioned, is one of those problems. Um, you know, facial hair, where you've, you, you, you're transitioning into, into a male gender, uh, being, being another. And to have that revision is actually quite difficult to go, you know, to revert back. And that's a, a massive psychological strain for those people who um, have reached the point where they've, you know, realized that that wasn't what they wanted to do in the first place. What role would you say that schools play in the demand for the interventions that were provided by the Tavistock Centre? Well, it's a really interesting question. So in the same way as that there's a duty for care for any medical professional uh, where minors are seeking um, advice on gender dysphoria, um, schools will probably have exactly the same level of duty of care to assess if a young person um, is starting to question that and the support provided around them. Now, uh, in terms of the approach taken, I think what the CAS report has actually recommended is that a multidisciplinary approach is, is taken. So whilst the Tavistock Clinic has been shut down, we are aware that localised uh, clinics are being set up and the expectation is not only do medical professionals um, get together to assess the needs of the minor, but also um, the educational setting that they're in also. Because uh, you know, a whole host of reasons could be 
could be provided for why a, a young person is going through probably one of the most confusing moments of their lives. Um, those who are, in fact, uh, struggling with their own sexual identity, those who may be going through a very, very um, difficult period at school with bullying and alike. And the um, requirement of these professionals is to really assess whether they fall into the category of gender dysphoria or there's another reason um, that needs to be treated. You said you're in the early stages of the legal case. Um, so it could be quite a slow process going through all these medical records. How long do you think it will take before we see, um, see some results? Really interesting question. So litigation is not a quick process. Um, the first uh, um, part of it is to evidence gather, take statements, look through medical records, as you suggest. Um, it really is dependent on whether a defendant is going to um, respond positively to allegations of negligence. And if um, there's cooperation between the parties and that's accepted, then that means the liability element is put to one side because parties have agreed that liability uh, uh, is accepted. Um, and then it's an issue of assessing how much damages the individual is, is, um, is compensated. So uh, a lot of these um, former patients have had significant psychological um, damage over a number of years as a result of um, whether it's a regret of, de regret of going through the treatment or um, the uh, difficulty in detransitioning. Um, and a, a, a alongside that, it could be financial losses, so the inability to work or for their careers to have been impacted as a result. You have how many people do you have coming forward at this stage? I saw a few numbers. Yeah, so we're, we're expecting up to a thousand people based on uh, the number of um, patients who have been treated by the Tavistock since 1989. And so far, we've had a steady stream of inquiries and those people who are um, seeking. Uh, legal representation, and I can't quite give you the latest figures, but it's been quite steady stream over the last two weeks of this campaign being launched. And what's it been like for you working on this case? Because sometimes, I mean, it's a sensitive topic. Have you faced any type of backlash? Well, I suppose the, the job of any lawyer is to block out any of the, the emotional sensitivities a case might bring. And all you can really do is do the best job you can to represent your clients in the best possible way. And that's the focus for us. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's You're welcome. All my questions. Thank you. Coming up, 200 skydivers this week are trying to set a world record, pushing the limits of what's possible. Stay tuned for more after the break. This week, 200 skydivers from 25 countries are attempting to break a world record. Despite the challenge they face, participants are thrilled to be part of the experience. This week, 200 skydivers from 19 to 55 are attempting to break a world record in the Chicago area. They want to create the largest vertical skydive. All jumpers exit their planes at 19,000 feet and fly together to create one giant formation. Brooke Nelson, CEO of Skydive Chicago and lead organizer of the event says, growing the size of the formation has been a lifelong project. 
This is our ninth world record. We started back in, I believe, 99 with uh, 24 people, and now here we are, 2022, with 200. As the number of people increases, the challenges grow. 200 people jumping out from 10 planes have less than a minute to form the pattern. Getting the people uh, and the skill to achieve these records is always a challenge. And then uh, just getting to work as a team and unite and um, you know, putting everybody together in 50 seconds is, is sometimes tricky. Andy Malchiotti, who had his first world record in 2005, loves challenges. The biggest challenge and the biggest satisfaction is that every single variable needs to click together at the same time. And there are a lot of variables. <laughs> Because of the difficulties, Tracy Holman, event manager of Skydive Chicago, says participants are selected based on their performance in the tryouts. It's really just going to be who can fly, who can be in their slot, who's a really strong flyer, um, who can get there really quickly and, you know, can be bumped into in the sky and is not like is going to be able to stay in their spot. So they have to handle a lot of turbulence, everything like that when they're flying. So it's a lot of experience up there. Most everybody up there has at least a thousand skydives, if not multiple thousands and hundreds of hours in the wind tunnel. Anna Moxness from Norway has multiple skydiving world records. She says the experience of connecting with others in the sky is unparalleled. It's really special because you get to work together as such a big team and that moment when it all connects, there's like an energy that passes through the formation and it's like a feeling you're not gonna get anywhere else in life. <laughs> the skydivers have been trying four to five times from 8 a.m. to sunset every day since Monday and will continue through Friday. Reporting by Angela Moy from the Sky, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.